I mean, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. We have finished another chapter. Woo! One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately put him out on the Sabbath day? Pull him, pull him out on the Sabbath day. They could not find, they could find no answer to these things. Lord Jesus, we pray for your clarity here this morning. We pray for you to open up your words to us. Engage with us here this morning through your spirit. Uh, Lord, just help us to see your heart, that we may build our lives upon you and your love and your word, Walk by, walking by your spirit. God, we pray here this morning that you would show us your heart for us to go forward, to live our lives in a way that, that glorifies you, in a way that, that loves and serves others. And Lord, a heart that engages with your heart so that we may live as you live, love as you love. Lord, lead us here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Does it seem that time just kind of flies by? Right? It's like, oh my gosh. Right? (coughs) Like, um, this week I found an old journal that I had tucked away in, in in my bookshelf. And it went all the way back to like 2008 or 2009. And it was a section of about four years or so. And I even found the original uh, plan for a church, a, race, a, relationally, a relationally driven strategy for a church. And we, I called it Portico. And it was the original inspiration for why Amberlynn and I wanted to move to, to the Gallatin Valley, was to plant a church with a relationally driven ministry mindset. Um, it was neat to just go back and, and read through that and, and how it's changed or not changed. Uh, in fact, even this week, uh, you know, on Facebook, on social media, I got a little alert. You know, this is my eighth year anniversary of being friends with Amber Lynn on the 14th. And so kind of fun story. So actually, uh, I, I, we we're friends on Facebook from the night that I actually met her because I kind of kind of situated it, if you know our story, where I went and visited her at a Bible study and got to know her through a Bible study. And, uh, and so that night, I asked her if I could, I could uh, add her on Facebook. And so uh, it was kind of a fun anniversary that I got to, to see on Facebook. Eight years knowing her on Facebook and in person, yeah. <laughs> not just on Facebook. Um, and then seeing you like that, I've been here for almost four years as, as, your, as your pastor here at this church. I've been here for almost four years. I know, time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> but it seems like, even like when I was looking back at, at my time in Texas, it seems so long ago. And it was, only, it was 10 years ago, which, you know, you think about 10, it doesn't really think, seem that long ago. But if you think of how much has happened in 10 years in your life, think about that. How much has happened in the last 10 years of your life? Right? There's, there's a saying that goes, we overestimate what we can accomplish in one year, but vastly underestimate what we can accomplish in five or ten. 
Right? So this morning, we're going to look at that, that kind of life that we live and how Jesus lived this patiently intentional life. <clears throat> that under scrutiny, we demonstrate humility with patient intentionality. Patient intentionality. Or you can even reverse those with in, you know, being intentionally patient. And I think that's how, what we can see in this passage with Jesus here this morning, is that he was displaying himself to be patient on purpose. Intentionally patient with these guys, with these Pharisees. Jesus showed himself to be unhurried, yet did everything he did with a reason, with a purpose, while he, was on, while he walked this earth. He, it's interesting to see that Jesus didn't have a sense of urgency, but he was focused. He lived his life with patience, a focused patience. Not a hurried urgency, but a knowledge that he was able to get done what the Father wanted to get done in the years that he was here and walked this earth. Jesus lived a patient, non-anxious life. And how do we do this? How did Jesus do this? How do we do this? Walking by the Holy Spirit. Jesus walked by the Spirit. He went and he prayed. He got the, he, his trajectory and his mission and, his, and the plans from the Father by praying all the time. And he would come back and put it in action and accomplish it. But he wasn't hurried. He wasn't in a hurry. And he wasn't anxious about it. He wasn't anxious about his life. He practiced what he preached. Jesus could have waited for the Sabbath to be open in, in this passage here. right? He could have waited. It's only a day. Yeah, whatever. But he didn't. He saw the need and he met the need immediately. Which begs the question, why wait? In this passage, Jesus is saying, yeah, maybe Shabbat, but why wait? I want to do good on the Sabbath. In fact, this guy is in the midst of suffering. He's swelling with fluid. He's in pain. He's, he's, in, he's inconvenienced. It's inconvenient to be, to be hindered by your health, to not be able to walk because all the arthritis in your body and, and the stress of what's going on in your life. It's a hindrance. And Jesus looked at this guy and he said, this situation in your life is not good. So I'm going to intercede. I'm going to engage. Why wait? So when we think about our, our lives today, we think about our time. Time today is a precious commodity. Time is worth more than the dollar. Time is worth more than the Bitcoin. Time is worth more these days than anything else. It goes by so fast. You can't save it. Nor can you make it go slower, nor can you refund it or return it. When you're short on time, you tend, we tend to focus on the things that are more important. Um, and yield, and, and it yields, we focus on the things that yield better results and effective results, right? Um, think about this. Jesus' ministry lasted three years. He was on this earth for 33 years, but his ministry portion... It was actively doing things in his ministry. It was only three years. 
a year less than I've been here. Think about that. If I would have wrapped things up a year ago and gone on to heaven, right? But his time was limited and important to accomplish the work that needed to be done. And so we get to this passage here, which a lot of theologians call the dinner discourse. And this dinner discourse uh, is going to entail the next probably like two or three weeks or so um, as we go through the passage, passages in Scripture. It kind of ends in, in verse 20, 24, but there, there could be evidence that it actually goes all the way through chapter 17. Um, but probably not. But there, there's, because it doesn't ever say, and he left and went here. So it could have been at this dinner for these next like three chapters. But most likely he, he was not. But it was kind of at least these next two or three weeks. We're going to be in, sitting in this dinner discourse. Now, as we think about dinner in the Jewish culture, ancient Jewish culture, it was very important. It was, it was a very weighty thing to have table fellowship with someone. You were associating with them. You were saying, I relate to this person. Like a, lot of, like a lot of these different people who are being connected to Jeffrey Epstein nowadays, right? You have this relationship with this known sex predator with Epstein Island and the, and the Lolita Express and all these politicians that are nervous because, you know, Lane Maxwell, whatever her name is, she was kind of the madam of, of Jeffrey Epstein, is now revealing different names because of their associations and if you had a picture taken with Jeffrey Epstein, you were associated with him and his misdeeds. Think about that. And so that's what we're talking about in this situation. Like if you ate dinner with someone, you were associating with them. You were saying, I, you know, if when you look at, at them, you look at me. When you look at me, you look at them. We're relating together. I agree with them, they agree with me. And that's why this is such a crazy thing. And not only this is he, is he sharing table fellowship, but what does it say? One Sabbath. They, sh- they shared a Shabbat dinner together, which was like a dinner above dinners. This is a, a sharing of fellowship, a sharing of faith with one another. This was an in-depth dinner that they were sharing together. This was a big deal to share Shabbat dinner with each other in that culture. And this leading Pharisee invited him over. So two interesting observations here this morning. One is that one of the leading Pharisees invited Jesus to share table fellowship with them, right? Remember last week, the Pharisee who helped Jesus or was trying to help Jesus out, he's like, hey, Herod's trying to, tell, trying to kill you. You should probably, you know, move, move along, move along. You know, you go and tell that, that fox, you know, that son of a biscuit-eating bulldog, you know, that... We talked about the last week. You can go watch that on, online. So this Pharisee is trying to help him. And now this Pharisee, one of the leading Pharisees, actually wants to relate and associate with Jesus. Maybe questioning him, seeing what's going on, seeing what he's teaching, having a more personal relationship with him. Let's talk about the Pharisees. A bit more. I know we've been kind of talking about the Pharisees here and there, but I want to talk a little bit more in depth about the Pharisees. So think about, you know, speaking of time, to put ourselves into this kind of state of mind within the realm of timelines. So it's interesting to note that the Pharisees existed from their beginning to the end of the temple era in AD 70, 
for the same amount of time that America has been a country. Let that sink in a little bit. They Think about that, that timeline. They established the religious culture. Imagine, like, what is the religious culture of our country? Because the Pharisees were the ones that established the religious culture of their day. Now think about who and how was our religious culture established in America. They established the religious culture, but they also established the status quo in Israel. The people of God, you know, after they freed themselves from the Greeks in about 167 before Christ, 167 uh, BC is when the Pharisees began. And so, and then they went all the way through to about 70 AD. <clears throat> they considered themselves better, higher than even the Levitical priesthood. And if you, you know anything about Jewish culture, about ancient Egypt, ancient Israeli culture, the priesthood was the culture. Like they were the leaders of Israel. The, the priests were the Aaronic priesthood were the leaders of Israel. Right? And so now the, the culture has shifted. The culture wars have won out. The Hasmoneans took into power, brought into power. And now we see that the Pharisees, this, this group of people that basically established themselves as the authority over all of Scripture, are controlling the religious culture. And basically, if you disagree with them, you disagree with God. But they're not even priests. They're just nerds. Religious nerds is who they are. It's interesting to see that they elevated themselves above the high priest himself. They were arrogant, but under the guise of piety and humility. Right? The saying, you see, praying long prayers, right? having long phylacteries on their, on their garments, on their prayer shawls. It's interesting, they had a saying that a learned bastard takes precedence over an ignorant high priest. They would rather someone who wasn't even a part of the priesthood to know, have more knowledge about God than a priest himself, who God instituted as the leaders of Israel. They considered themselves arbiters or judges of what was true, of truth itself. And culturally speaking, they were. They engaged that way and they were, you know, they were who anyone went to for biblical interpretation. But, I think we see this in all of Jesus' interactions with them. They were so far outside of the heart of God that they couldn't even hear and experience God himself right under their noses. He was right in front of them. The author of the word that they had memorized since they were five years old. And they missed him because they cultivated the wrong religious culture. They missed the heart of God. They completely ignored the heart of Yahweh. They ignored him. The Pharisees established uh, this culture of what's known as rabbinical Judaism. Uh, I should have put that down as a point. But rabbinical Judaism. And this started, as we can see, with the establishment of things like the Mishnah and the Talmud. 
these different you know, law, you know, and the law plus their ordinances, what the Pharisees wrote, these different sages through the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so they, you know, these, they cultivated all these traditions because they didn't want to break the law of God, but they elevated these traditions above the word of God. So much so that they would actually break the law by holding to their traditions as Jesus would often correct them and, and hark on them for. And Pharisaism, I don't know if you know this, but Pharisaism actually still exists today. Um, all forms of modern Judaism today consider themselves heirs of this rabbinical Judaism. They still follow the, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the laws and the traditions today, even though they have no temple. They still follow these rules and regulations. Actually, this is where, when you look at uh, you know, today's Hasidic, Hasidic Jews, you know, the guys with the black cats and the, and the, uh, you know, the, the long curly cues down their face and their long beards, right, and the prayer shawls. And if you go to Israel today, you'll see a lot of these guys still today that are, that are Hasidic Jews. These are the practicing modern-day Pharisees. The basis of this rabbinical Judaism today is the the desire to be faithful to God. So it's not necessarily beginning with this malicious, we want to control people mentality. That's just the result. They they desire to be faithful to God and fear that they're not. They desire to be faithful. The The road to hell is paved with what? good intentions. They have good intentions to be faithful to God. They want to worship God. They want to be found faithful to God, but they fear that they are not. So they keep, they keep these strict rules and regulations and laws. There lies a few questions I want us to engage with here this morning. What and who has set the religious culture of our religious culture today? the founding fathers. These, these pastors and, and Christians who came over from England, from Europe, right? They were fleeing religious perse- persecution from the Church of England and from Europe, right? And so they came over and they established the religious culture of here, of America. And then through the years, we've seen these different people, these different, these different names you know, uh, in, in the faith community. George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. We see these, these big figures even in more in modern day history, like with Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, Franklin Graham nowadays, or Will Graham, his grandson. These different, these big, you know, big name guys, these big names and big figureheads that are cultivating and creating the religious culture of Christianity within our country. Is it right? Is it true? According to the scripture? Would we recognize, here's a question for us, would we recognize, our, would we ourselves recognize and worship God if he physically walked through that door? We might say yes because we believe that, you know, God, will, you know, Jesus' final coming will be like with the great trumpets and like all this crazy stuff happening and like this huge revelation. They thought the same thing. <coughs> Would we even believe it if it came in a more common way? If God came in a common method? 
Because they didn't believe that the Messiah was going to come in a, in a common method. They thought it was going to be this great big warrior on a, warrior on a chariot of fire, you know, leading Israel to victory over the Romans <coughs> and establishing the kingdom of God with authority, <laughs> which is exactly what he did. Are we even aware of our own spiritual presuppositions? This is you know, the mental and spiritual and emotional baggage that we bring to our faith. The, these things that we bring to the interpretation of the Bible itself. Things that we've been taught and may believe, and we don't even know where they came from, but they're, they're completely a skewed way of, you know, skewed perspective. Because think about it. These Pharisees were, were just kind of, I wouldn't say, you know, they were more victims of how they were taught. It was the culture in which they were taught which was right. Yet they were very wrong. Are there areas about our Christian culture that we believe are so right and so on that to God are so very, very wrong and counter to the very word of God, counter to the spirit of God, counter to the heart of God? Have we been taught and, and teach others this religious, a religious Christianity, a desire to be faithful to God, but with a fear that we are not? So we try and keep strict rules and laws out of a sense of duty to God. And so our very faith is personified by fear. I'm not doing enough. I'm not being enough. I'm not keeping the rules be- well, well enough. I'm not living right. I'm not having the right emotions God, I shouldn't feel this way. God, I shouldn't feel angry. God, I shouldn't feel worried. God, I shouldn't feel this, so I'm just going to keep guilt on myself because I'm wrong. I'm thinking wrong. I'm doing wrong. Nothing I do is ever right. That's the religious side of our faith that has been perpetuated. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't forget one of the greatest verses in all of the New Testament. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, I love this word. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guilt and shame are not from God. Condemnation is not of God. Holy Spirit's convicting me. No. Conviction is a law term of convicting you of a crime. And Jesus looks at you, the Father looks at you and and declares you are innocent. So there's now no conviction because you have been set free from the law of sin and death. The place says in Romans 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit did what the law of man could not do. The law of Moses, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God himself did by coming in the flesh and giving us his Spirit. There's now no no condemnation, no conviction, no guilt, no shame. All Jesus is doing is saying, look at me. See my heart. Experience my heart. Experience a connection with me and you will do what I do. Know me and you will know my thoughts. And when you know my thoughts, you will know my ways. When you know my ways, you will know what to do. You will know how to live your life. There's correction, but there's not conviction. 
Do we restrict or withhold grace and mercy and love from people who we deem as less deserving? As though people could deserve grace? People could deserve mercy? People could deserve our love? Oh, you don't deserve my love because you did, 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 did. You don't deserve grace and mercy because look at your past. And you're going to stand here and... Who are those we consider the religious arbiters of truth today? Is it who we see in the mirror? Do we view ourselves as as an arbiter of truth? A judge of truth? Who do we view as the sinner who is undeserving of God's grace, mercy, and love? Because that's what this was going on here. These guys, these Pharisees were looking at this man who was sitting in their midst and saying, because it's Shabbat, you don't deserve to be healed. But what did Jesus say? Well, what did Jesus first do? Jesus went. Jesus went to the dinner. So he was invited and he went. Jesus not only had compassion on the sinner in this passage here or in the life of his ministry, like all those who were brought to him that he healed, all those who were brought to him with demon possession and he cast out the demons, that wasn't just the life of his ministry. What did Jesus also spend his precious time doing? Engaging with the religious. He had compassion on the religious. Jesus chose to associate with the religious. So even in our own lives, we might look at these religious people and say, and like turn and be angry against them versus God's heart is saying, I have grace and love and compassion for even you. Why? Because it's the love of God. It's the mercy of God. It's the kindness of God that leads people to change their minds about God. That word metanoia, it is the kindness of God that brings people to metanoia, to change their ways, to change their thinking. So you're not going to change a modern-day Pharisee's, you know, religious person's opinion by yelling and screaming and, and wagging your finger at them. That's not the way that you change people. He went and he associated with these so that they would be able to see God's compassion at work. And that they would turn and have that same compassion because he was emulating. He didn't let them off the hook though. He didn't, he didn't just like sit there and like do nothing, just like kind of do it and like kumbaya. No, he didn't let them off the hook. He took it as an opportunity to reason with them and to challenge their religious worldview and to counter-argue their religious traditions, a.k.a. how things have always been. Jesus, I love this, you know, but Jesus, but God had other plans than even the plans that they had during this passage. Where did this guy come from? Was he a guest? Was he invited? Was it maybe a trap? Were they trying to trap Jesus? Hey, let's go, go grab a sick guy and bring him in here and see if he's going to heal him in, our, in front of us. We got him now. <laughs> How dare he have compassion and love for people. But Jesus had other plans. Jesus' question. Let's, let's see that question that he asked. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Well, let's look at the law. 
If you see your brother Israelites, ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it. Make sure you return it to your brother. If your brother does not live near you, or your, uh, live near you, or you don't know him, you are to bring the animal to your home to remain with you until your brother comes looking for it. Then you can return it to him. Do the same for his donkey, his garment, or anything your brother has lost and you have found. You must not ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or ox fallen down on the road, do not ignore it. Help him lift it up. Jesus set the tone for this dinner. He set the tone for this dinner discourse by his actions with this man. By answering his own question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Yes! Yes, it is! It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to cultivate life, not to kill. There's absolutely no law that forbids healing on the Sabbath. In fact, they were instructed to do these things as we just read. Because if they didn't, they were guilty if they did not help. It didn't matter what what day of the week. They're instructed to do these things for their fellow Jewish brother. It was even lawful according to their own traditions in the mission of the Talmud. It's lawful even to their own traditions. They had nothing. He was breaking nothing except their grumblings, except their convictions that they wanted Jesus to be wrong. They were so desiring for Jesus to be wrong. It's like, have you ever played a game with a, with a kid, with a child? Right? You're playing this game, and they're so, I want to win. So they're making up all sorts of weird rules. No, you can't do that because the rule for you is... No, if it doesn't apply to, to, to you too, it doesn't apply to me. Well, but your mom, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> You're not making a game fun. You're making up all these rules, basically in order to force yourself to win. And that's not fun at all. That's not even a game worth playing. They were so... This is what exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were so legalistic, but they would also changed their interpretations and positions to suit their own situation to make them appeal, appear holier. They were making up rules like a kid. They were children. They were acting like a child. No offense, Jackson Hazel. And this is the incident. You know, in this incident, they kept silent. Why? Because Jesus backed them into, into a corner. They did not want to indict themselves that they knew that they were wrong, that this is exactly what they were doing. They were making up stuff just because they didn't like him. They didn't like what he was doing, even though what he was doing wasn't against any laws. Jesus is, you know, Jesus is basically saying, you have no reason or excuse to be mad. Seriously, you should smile more. Be happy. Look, the guy's healed. Why aren't you smiling? He's happy. He's having a great Shabbat. You fuddy daddies. Jesus is saying, look and be glad. Put yourself in his position. Are you seriously going to sit there and harden your, heart, or your hearts against what I just did to this man? Really? What does it say? The Pharisees could find no answer to these things. Did they stay mad? Well, perhaps. But perhaps they were won over. Perhaps 
This was maybe Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea that we see later is, is a follower of Jesus and a lover of Jesus. Maybe this is the leading Pharisee and he was won over. He was convinced, man, I have seen the heart of God in front of me. I have been so wrong. I'm going to follow him instead. They could find no answer for these things. They kept silent. They were doubtless, there were, there were doubtless many other Pharisees at this dinner in attendance who heard him and received or rejected him in, to differing degrees, right? There were probably several Pharisees. Because this is one of the leading Pharisees, he probably had a, bu- a bunch of henchmen that were surrounding him coming to his Shabbat. Family members, friends. This was most, most likely in Capernaum. You ever have these difficult decisions or these difficult conversations to have? Worst text message to ever get? We need to talk. <clears throat> right? There's this confrontation where you're like, ugh, I don't like confrontation. Other people love confrontation. They're like, hey, let me at it. This sounds like, this sounds like fun. I like fighting. Let's go. Come on. Right? I saw you're probably one of those. <laughs> but you know, these difficult times, these difficult conversations, you know, correcting children or correcting subordinates at work. Confession, I'm not good at comfort, confrontation. I don't like it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm such a, a cheerleader. You know, I don't want to bring people down. I just want to encourage people. I want people to be encouraged in their faith, to walk in the way of, of, of goodness and life everlasting. So when they're doing something stupid, I'm like, oh, I don't like rebuking. Right? I don't think Jesus did either. We always need to, to approach these difficulties, these difficult situations with the same compassion and humility that Jesus displayed with this man. Because they were trying to confront him. They're, they're scrutinizing every little thing that Jesus did or said. And so when you're under scrutiny, demonstrate humility with patient intentionality. Jesus demonstrated this humility in the face of scrutiny with patient intentionality. We need to learn and develop our responses to do the same. He didn't care what these Pharisees thought. But he wanted to inspire them to see God's grace, his mercy, and love through the heart of the Father. And so we also need to learn to develop and you know, develop our responses to do the same. He wasn't coming down hard on them yet. We need to learn and develop our responses to have that same patience. His intention with these religious, with these religious rulers was to show them the Father. Jesus even was quoted all over the book of John. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He kept saying this to them. He wanted them to see the Father if they were willing to receive the Father. We need to learn and develop our responses to do the same with the religious, legalistic, mean, and hard-hearted today. Having that patience with people. Having the, one, you know, the ones who are the meanest 
Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we have that, hu- that compassion and that humility so that they can see the heart of the Father through our lives? Those who are lost in the world and those who are religious and hard-hearted. Those who are Father, Son, and Holy Bible versus Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this tells us about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, we live our lives loving His Word because we get to experience his character through the word of God. Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit awakens this in our lives, awakens our spirit, awakens the presence of Jesus in our lives. And how we respond and how we live our lives. Do we live our lives with that patient intentionality? Not being hurried, not being anxious, not plowing over people, but demonstrating that humility by being patient, by being a non-anxious presence in an anxious world and in one another's lives to encourage one another and correcting and rebuking when needed, but not living there. I think too many, of, too many Christians live in this place of rebuke. I'm going to rebuke everyone because they're wrong. We can't hang out because you think this about Revelation. Versus having the the heart of unity, having the heart of love and humility with one another. So, when under that scrutiny, demonstrate humility with patient intentionality. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning and our time together. Lord, teach us what it means to live in that patient intentionality in our lives as you lived with that patient intentionality during the life of your ministry here on earth. Lead us, God, by your Spirit. Let us walk by your Holy Spirit. Bless us, God, as we, as we uh, spend this time together here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.